0: Hi, my name is Cecilia Punar, and welcome to this episode of Brave New Women. All around the world, there are amazing, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Brave New Women is about giving those women a platform and a voice, and it's about changing the way that women are perceived, and it's a way of inspiring all of us to do the things that we've always wanted to do. It's my pleasure today to welcome to the to the podcast, Catherine Brimblecombe. And Catherine is has an unusual background, probably so far the most unusual uh, career that I've of anyone that I've I've interviewed for the for the podcast. So Catherine has a master's in philosophy from the University of Queensland. She's also um, an artist and has an extremely unusual angle on her art. So that's, that's what I'd be, I'm interested in talking to Catherine about today. So Catherine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Cecilia. Thank you.
0: So uh, good Catherine, to be here. Um, could you just tell me a little bit about um, what you do every day? What is your, what, you know, what, do, you, what do you do every day?
1: Every day. Well, that, that changes as different things occur. But i um, in my studio most days. Uh, at the moment, um, I'm actually preparing my first milestone document for a PhD. Mm-hmm. So there's a fair bit of time spent at the computer. But uh, it is a PhD that involves both formal research and creative practice research. So my painting practice is part of the research methodology in the research approach. So basically, every day I am um, thinking about my practice. And at the moment, it's a more targeted kind of thinking because I've got to um, unpack what I do in order to um, situate my arguments about militarised technology and the militarisability of uh, civilian technology within a, a kind of understandable framework whereby people can see that creative practice can contribute new knowledge. So, um, but when once I've got the milestone over, I'll probably go back to um, what is a more normal. Although that's going to be normal for three years, because so I've only just started. But a, a normal day will see me loving being at home and being in my studio. That's been the case since my youngest daughter left school. Obviously, before that, you know, the day was a little bit more frantic. -hmm. Um, I divorced twenty years ago, so I've been a single mum for a long time, Mm -hmm. and uh, life was a little bit more hectic Mm. (laughs) than it is now. Um, But uh, 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 you know, my children give me great pleasure too.
0: Mm -hmm. So tell me, what's a milestone document? A milestone moment. A a document for Uh, for your for your PhD.
1: Oh, a milestone a milestone document. Uh, when you do either a a research master's or a PhD, in Australia anyway, they have these milestones you actually have to get through in order to continue. So Mm -hmm. milestone one is um, really a confirmation uh, event where you you prepare a document, uh, independent readers read that document to ascertain whether there's actually a PhD project in there. Um, And if they see that, and normally that is the case, they then give you... Um, advice. Uh, you also have to uh, present a 20-minute presentation uh, and the independent readers are at that as well. Mm-hmm. So, you have to defend your project, uh, but also uh, take on board any feedback that you get. So, mm-hmm. for a PhD, um, the one I'm doing at Curtin University in Western Australia, the first milestone is at six months. So, that's in early February. hmm and then you have another one a year later, and then another one about a year later, and then you submit.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's your what's your PhD yeah. about?
1: Uh, well, I was very lucky to get a uh, scholarship that's provided by Curtin University looking at contemporary aesthetics and militarisation, and I've chosen to focus on the way um Signals carried by the radio frequencies in the electromagnetic spectrum enable militarised technology. So they're, they're the, they enable the systems as well as the hardware. And in a world where they talk about network-centric war, hybrid war, grey zone war, which draws in using cyber technology, digital technology, um, the importance of signals is actually quite vital. So I'm looking at... Um, signals and and drawing upon my um, interest in airborne weaponizable drones. And now I've got an interest in looking at how civilian drones have been used, particularly during the um, COVID-19 pandemic and a creeping normalisation of their use to surveil, to monitor um, and to broadcast messages. So um, that's what I'm looking at. And I'm mm-hmm. doing that through formal research
0: as well as creative practice. mm mm-hmm and um i mean i'm sort of struggling a little bit to understand what your your um your view is of um the these signals and the military practices um are, are you saying they're bad they're good they're indifferent they are what they are um what's your uh, i'm
1: not saying they're bad or good um, what I'm saying is that we need to understand that this uh, signals in the radio frequency range are invisible um but also signals are carried by cables but they're discrete under the sea or buried but I'm more interested in the ones that um connect satellites to drones to ground based ground um control stations to mobile phones to computers to G, you know gps in your vehicle so uh I just think there's not a lot of attention paid to the enabling uh, capacities of signals because the signals actually carry instructions they uh, to operate the uh, uh, military hardware, but they also carry data and information backwards and forwards from the sensors that are on board these uh, big pieces of equipment. So when you talk about an airborne drone, um, it's not, just the actual thing itself. It's the senses that it carries as well. Its
0: payload. Mm-hmm. And so, you, what you're interested in is all the information that's coming from that's sort of flowing around around us. That is coming from the satellite, going to a drone, going to the ground borne um, installation. I'm interested in the way that if you visualise, which I can do in
1: paintings, if you visualise these normally invisible signals. What happens to your understanding of the environment? So I see the environment from land to satellites as a volumetrically occupied space, mm-hmm. but and, and which mediates how we behave. Even in certain places in the world, it becomes a life and death type of mediation of how you might behave. But, um, you know, even our mobile phones, if we're not in range, uh, we, can, we can feel... Senses of the anxiety because somebody may have messaged us, or the the uh, back to base alarm system might have gone off, and you haven't been able to. So there are these anxieties that actually mediate um, how we behave and how we think, and um, it's due to the fact that we're, we're reliant on these devices that are enabled. Their functioning and operability is enabled by um, signalling. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I'll just so you can't really see
0: it. But this yeah, I can see it perfectly. Here, I can see it perfectly.
1: Yeah, so I've got, um, you know, a, a satellite, another satellite. I've got um, um, a credit card. I've got a green cloud here, which is uh, symbolising that cloud, mm-hmm. um, which is basic, you know, which are actually bricks and mortar buildings. I've got a drone here. I've got a ground control station, I've got a car. Um, So it's basically kind of saying if you visualise these signals, there's another kind of topography that is Mm -hmm. overlaid and um, inserted into our landscape in a way that, um, um, in a way, it holds us hostage. Mm -hmm. So you can also see in this that, you know, the militarizability of civilian technology I.e. Uh, if you were in a, a certain place in the Middle East, if your mobile phone indicated where you might be, that means that you become a much more easily targetable, um, you know, person of interest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's, that's, that's how I, <laughs> that's, um, the kind of process that uh, I'm thinking through. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know, Bandwidth is becoming uh, very congested, so the, um, um, in both commercial areas and in the military they're doing a lot of research on how to optimise bandwidth use um, or to avoid using it when, where possible. So onboard uh, devices that actually have artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities can do onboard analyses of data collected from various sensors. And that reduces the necessity to use signals back to a human on the ground to potentially do ana- um, or to do analyses. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and this is coming through in a lot of the literature uh, that comes out of reports from various militaries around the world. Um, and I just I, I just think it is uh, definitely worth a lot of critical attention so that the general public um and people who uh, research this sort of, you know, this kind of technology, um, can talk about it in a way that is is informative,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and potentially, I mean, you know, there is a warning.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're probably of the generation. I mean, certainly when I grew up, um, we didn't have. I remember my the first Apple IIe computer that we got when I was. Um, Maybe fifteen, and um, and my father looked at it, and I showed him how to work it. and He said, "Oh, that that just looks too difficult." And so, in our lifetime, we've gone from that to a world where there are satellites, um, there's um, waves everywhere. We're completely reliant on on that. And um, I mean, I personally find it scary. Um, well,
1: it's interesting that you brought up your childhood because um, mine is a little bit different in that I'm I'm, I'm older than you, so I go back a bit further. But my dad, who um, while he was a grain grower, so a farmer in Western Queensland, he was also from the age of twelve a very very keen ham radio amateur radio operator. Uh-huh. So I grew up I grew up with the latest cameras. He made our first television set on the dining room table when I was a baby in the early 60s. That was the TV I watched the moon landing on. Before I was born, um, when the Russians or the Soviets sent up Sputnik 1, the first satellite, and the Americans were watching around we have to uh, track this satellite. So the jet propulsion unit, which existed um, just before NASA, it was formed a year later. um, So Sputnik went up in 1957. Um, there was a fellow working at the Jet Propulsion Unit who um, and because there was too much interference for them to actually track the Sputnik 1, this guy was a ham radio operator and he got some of his mates together and they went out and they started tracking it from their you know, shack or whatever they had. But they conscripted ham, other hams from around the world to also track it. So my dad, who was just 20, was one of those hams who tracked Sputnik 1 and sent the coordinates back to the Jet Propulsion Unit. Right. So, in a way, my interest in contemporary militarised technology is is bookended on one end by the fact that my father participated in a very small way in the, the space race um, and the Cold War, uh, mm. which sort of led to this, you know, accelerating um, and hastening developments in uh, contemporary technology. So we had computers and um, and things like that in the house long before many other domestic homes had them, and and before the internet. Way before the internet, we got news from around the world because of Dad's ham radio um, um, connections. So and long before mainstream media even got it, got the news. Mm. So my. My um, my childhood is a little different from yours,
0: but it's probably a lot different from most people actually <laughs> of, of my age group, yeah. And were you particularly interested in that technology or did, was it just that it was around, <laughs> that it was normal? Were you building things as well? Were you building um, things with your dad?
1: Well, um, dad wasn't the most patient person in the world. <laughs> so, um, and and probably one of the things that i did learn was that technology can be very seductive um and that my my father preferred the company of his technology to the human beings that lived with him mm-hmm. um and you know so i can see you know some of the the social commentary on the way that we're addicted to devices i i'm not surprised because i saw how my father was um growing up that mm-hmm. we even had um UHV VHF device in the car and if and we weren't allowed to talk in the car if, just in case somebody would connect with him so I'm not uh, it doesn't surprise me this sort of disconnect that's happening as a result of uh, addictions to technology having said that I, I was really interested and in when um, when uh, dad decided he needed a new movie camera or a new camera because he always had the latest gadgets I I did and my two brothers, we benefited by being given the uh, not very old previous one that Dad owned. So we had movie cameras, you know, at a very young age. And there was an occasion where I made a little crystal set and um, but then I added to it by taking it out to Dad's ham shack and hooking it up to various wires. I don't know how I knew which wires took it to get a better reception. So... Yeah, I wish I wish I had learnt more of the practicalities of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but dad didn't have the patience
0: with young children mm-hmm. to, to persist in that kind of teaching. Mm-hmm. And so then when when you left home, that how did that continue on in your in your interests? Well, it
1: it probably just permeated in the background. Um uh, I did art history in my undergraduate degree at university and I got a job straight out of university as a curatorial assistant at the National Gallery in Canberra. Mm-hmm. I got married quite young and moved to uh, Gundawindi, which is further west than where I grew up. Um, and In uh, Queensland? My, in Queensland, on the border between Queensland and New South Wales. Mm-hmm. My now ex-husband um, um, is a lawyer, was a lawyer out there, but he also loved um, and embraced new technology when it mm-hmm. came in. And, uh, it, and I was never resistant to that and I would, you know, use it. So we had a mobile phone, one of those, I don't know, you're probably too young to remember, but they they were block, brick block things that <laughs> had terrible battery length. And whenever we came to Brisbane, guess who had to have it in her handbag? Um, lumping it around (laughs) so uh but it it, the the interesting technology has permeated um and oscillated from a great great interest to little bits of interest over the years but about 10 or so years ago i read a book called our final century by Lord Martin Rees, who's the Lord Astronomer in the UK. And basically, it goes through various apocalyptic situations, some um, that could be caused by natural occurrences, but many that could be caused by uh, human-made technologies. So, I got interested in existential risk posed by emerging technologies. So, those things that um, even if there was a really, really tiny risk of something happening, but the outcome was apocalyptic, it was worthwhile questioning it or something that could cause civilization collapse. Um, so rather, <laughs> rather kind of, uh, um, torrid types of things to be interested in. And then when I uh, started my master's degree, I was wanting to look at existential risk, but that's a very big topic. So, I narrowed it down to um, um, militarized technology, particularly in an examination of the airborne drone,
0: mm-hmm.
1: airborne military drone.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, what I'm hearing is you had this you had this technology stream that was running through your life from you know in, in various degrees from when you were a child and from your father. And so, now tell me a little bit about the the art. Where did where did that come from? I
1: Oh, that comes from my mother's side. So um, mum, uh, very well educated, three degrees, including two postgraduate degrees, um, an artist, a writer, a teacher, and always very encouraging, as was my grandmother, her mother, who was a bit of a polymath, really. She, She wrote poetry, had her first poems published when she was 14, growing up in Perth. She wrote, she painted, she was an accountant. So mm-hmm. she had both sides of her brain uh, really well operating. Um, she was a, a seamstress. She was a, uh, um, uh, an amateur astronomer. When, when she came out and stayed with us on the farm, she'd take the three of us, the three
0: children,
1: out into the dark sky and on the flat black soil, naturally a treeless Plain, which is where I grew up, the the night sky, and it still is the same because you don't have the ambient light that you get from um, where there might be settlements. The Milky Way is like um, someone's flung jewels across black velvet. Mm-hmm. But Grandmama, we called her Grandmama, um, she could point out all of the, the different, you know, stars and she could point out constellations. And, again, I regret that I didn't learn them off by heart. But um, so that that sort of more artsy uh, side has come definitely through my, my mother's side
0: of family. Mm-hmm. And when did you start? You, you, does, does, do you just express it in painting or there, uh, uh, do you express it in other ways as well, that creative artsy side?
1: Uh, well, <clears throat> over many years I've experimented with different kinds of mediums. So obviously... Um, you know, growing up with someone like my dad, I had movie cameras when I was young and dad had movie cameras and we'd sit and watch, you know, homemade movies a lot. And um, <laughs> my brother, Wilfred, he was a very, and still is. You may have met Wilfred at some stage, I don't know, but Wilfred, is um, in IT, so he's in big data and was in supercomputing. So that, that's definitely the kind of thing that comes from my father. But, again, for my mother, Wilfred is very interested in photography and growing up on the farm because in Australia, and it's probably like most places, you've got outbuildings, and Wilfred had a, um, had a dark room in one of the outbuildings. So mm-hmm. I used to watch him do that. But he never, And then because I did art all the way through school and then um, <clears throat> when I was at the National Gallery, the director at the time, uh, James Mollison, He 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 encouraged uh, members of the staff to do art courses and made arrangements at um, the College of Art for printmaking. So I did lithography and some etching. I've worked in installation. I've worked um, in sculpture, but I I always come back to painting. You know, it's what I love to do, and mm-hmm. uh, and. In, you know, in an age where there is a lot of emphasis put on experimentation with new media, I really have to hold my ground and say, "Well, painting is not dead. It's not an anachronism." Um, and my desire to to, to sort of examine uh, issues related to contemporary militarizable, militarized technology through painting um, is actually quite innovative. It's mm. um, and allows me to be to separate myself from the actual technology that I'm critiquing um, because, you know, new media technology is still reliant on digital and cyber, you know, systems for creation, exhibition and storage, whereas a painting, I don't need any of that. So there Mm. can be, i suggest, a critical distance that doesn't draw me into some sort of accusation of being complicit with the system.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I love the idea that you're using a very... Old art form to deal with very contemporary issues. Yes, yes, yes. I I think it's quite subversive, yeah. <laughs> but
1: you know others may disagree. But but uh, I I I because you know my processes cannot be hat tracked. You know data can't be collected. You know unless somebody was filming me. But even then, that's not like being able to track back um, through and painting um also with paint I like the paint to do its own work so the image behind me here I don't know if you can see it there's it yeah. a lot of um the amorphous background is formed by really liquid oil paint lots of turps and oil in it and me tipping the canvas up and around and and leaving it in a certain way for a period of time so even though there's a randomness to it I'm kind of controlling it but sometimes things happen that I'm not expecting and I love Mm -hmm. then over the top I put these images of drones and um, I also parody computer imaging graphics and I sometimes paint strings of colourful binary code Um, so that's overlaid over the top of these amorphous backgrounds and there's a little bit there's a tension between that kind of um, the coldness of the technology and the, the the paint which I think creates a kind of distance that gives gives room for a contemplative and critical analysis of contemporary technology mm-hmm. I and in many of the paintings it almost is like I'm flying and so going back to the farm um I used to be able to fly <laughs> that mm-hmm. sounds really fanciful but I knew what our farm looked like from above even though I'd never been in an airplane so there it's this ability for me, my imagination, to elevate myself. And, um, and it's, it's still very evident in my work. But I've actually, um, through the process of uh, deep thinking through my research, I've come up with a term. It's called imaginational metavalence. Mm-hmm. So it's basically where, in the act of imaginal flight, you can actually look look down or fly around and beyond all of this sort of infrastructure, this technological infrastructure, and and in in painting, I can then uh, depict this kind of surveillance, which is actually a an, an oversight, so meta surveillance of the the world in which we live.
0: When you say when you say you you could fly, um. Is what you is what you mean that you had the ability, ability with your imagination to go up above the landscape and to imagine how it would look yeah. from above? Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And
1: I nearly I nearly did architecture when I left school, but I was talked out of it because people said my maths wasn't good enough. I mean, I can actually look over a, a plan of a building and I can build it three D in my head, and I can. You know, I mean, so there I, I
0: have, I suppose, what you would call um, very good spatial awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I suppose when you come from somewhere like western Queensland where it's completely flat, <laughs> there's a sense of space.
1: Well, I, I say to people distance was my playground um, mm. because there was very little to obscure. You know, to the west it was just a completely flat um um, scene and uh, in summer the, the meeting of sky and land melted into shimmering, you know, with the shimmering rajas And then to the east there was a big mountain range, but that was, you know, many, many kilometres away. So there was this, um, this distance that absorbed you. And, in fact, when we had visitors from overseas, um, the UK, from Germany, uh, from Asia, many of them would become quite anxious because they weren't used to that kind of
0: uh, space around them. Mm. And when did you start to combine your interesting technology and your art? Um,
1: well, when I read uh, Lord Martin Rees' book, Our Final Century, I started because in many of my paintings, even now, I put a tree, which is the tree of life. So I like to use the tree of life as a representation of humanity. Mm-hmm. So, um, but and I've used the tree of life in my work for a very, very long time. So after I read that book, I started introducing um, strings of binary code, instructing, because you know, binary code is basically instructional, um, the word. Life And I would use these strings as branches from the tree to kind of question, well, you know, what kind of codes do we really want to follow? Because the tree of life, you know, it insinuates a kind of code um, of, for all life. Um, so that was when I started to introduce some, you know, clearly technological, contemporary technological um, elements into my work. And then when I um, started researching for my master's, I was reading lots of uh, very interesting texts on drone warfare, drone technology, uh, and I deliberately made sure I did a lot of technical research so that that underpins an integrity and a kind of authoritative voice that comes through my work. Um, And so... And it was a really interesting thing because with my master's, it was purely research. It didn't actually include my practice. It wasn't a practice-led degree. But I got into the pattern of coming home every night and just drawing and doing works on paper. I didn't have time for the oil paintings. And as I was working through some of the ideas and the things that struck me as very interesting in my research, I would come up with new ideas that, It would then feed back into the research. So it became this wonderful sort of um, oscillating type of experience where, um, um, and in fact, I think that really benefited my research too and demonstrated to people that creative practice can actually be a very legitimate and very vital form of research particularly in an age where we need multiple perspectives on on things, um, if you ignore the arts and what the arts can actually trigger um, and the kinds of questions that they might trigger, I don't know that the arts necessarily can say it has answers, but as a form of triggering of questions, well, that has to be of value to the world in which we live.
0: I love the way that you say that, I mean, the way I, I hear it is that you were doing during the day you were doing a lot of very left brain analytical work on you know hard technical you know hard in, in the in the sense that you know of touching hard um technical things and then coming home and drawing and that that was then triggering a completely different part of your mind uh, which was then feeding back into the um into the research and the left brain stuff that you were doing the, during doing during the day—it seems like it's a very holistic way of working. Of um, you know, two different parts of you feeding, and the two different parts of your of your parents too feeding into each other. I think that's wonderful.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, Dad uh, died mm, probably uh, six months after I started the degree, but he was fascinated and he'd send me all of these articles about various technological things. And I called him my research assistant, <laughs> um, but he was, you know, it. <laughs> and it's sad that he didn't um, live long enough to see me get the degree. But, yeah, there's something about, I think, actually with hands-on work, and here I am um, drawing and painting this kind of technology, you become, you get to know it in a different way than you would if you just see it or if you actually build it up through software Um, because, you know, there is a more tactile, um, temporal um, aspect to it because it's not like I can let the software, you know, do something without, you know, while I go and make a cup of tea sort of thing. (laughs) Um, you know, whereas, you know, sometimes I will leave the paint to do its own thing, but if I leave it at the wrong time, well, sometimes it can work out really well, but other times it it, it doesn't. So there is this um, kind of introduced accident that as an artist, you begin to learn where something will work and when something won't work, and I've learnt to walk away from my work when I'm frustrated or at a point at an impasse where I can't move through, either because the work isn't doing something for me aesthetically or my ideas aren't being um, um, expressed in the way that I want them to. So I leave the work somewhere where I can see it when I first come back to the studio. And it's that, again, that sense of distance over time uh, and with new eyes and I see the work and I go, yep, that's what I need to do. And, and it, it, it works most of the time. It's part mm-hmm. of the process. Mm-hmm. It's part of the process. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a sense of knowing with this hands-on, um, um, you know, relationship actually with the technology. And it was through that process when I was doing my masters that I started to draw the signals between, um, so, a ground control station, a GPS satellite, and a, a communication satellite, and an airborne drone, and then from its wide area surveillance or imaging, you know, system, other lines that indicated, you know, infrared, night vision, whatever, um, um, data gathering. And so, I started. I started. It was actually through that that I started to realise that there was this new kind of topography that was being formed around the planet, and um, in a way, the paintings act as a kind of um, counter-mapping or a counter-cartography, so it's revealing, um, you know, forces of the
0: new techno-empire mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really, it's showing um, what we can't see. It's making visu- making visible yeah. what we can't see, what's there, that we can't see. Uh. Yes, yes. And you know, I, I Whilst I'm obviously
1: concerned about these things, what I really enjoy is when people see the work. And I've, you know, I've got people who have never ever thought about um, militarized technology drones before. I've even had engineers from major, um, you know, military development companies happen to come by and they're just enthralled and they say, you're on to come here. This is a really good way of, prodding us in the system to actually question what we're doing because I mean Mm -hmm. there's that old thing you know just because we can does that mean we should it's a really good question to ask and it's a really good base for a a really
0: um, uh,
1: expansive type of risk analysis.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah and I think um, that question is is so unbelievably relevant right now you know there are so many things that we can do (laughs) And now we're starting to say, but actually, is that what we should be doing? Is that um, I mean, I imagine you've read a uh, um by um, Harari. I've, I'm, I'm
1: yes, yeah, a very big book, and I'm I haven't finished it. Like a number yeah. of things I've got, but I, yes, and I've read a number of I've read a number of his other works and um, articles. So yeah, definitely. So he he. Um, He has presented at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge University, which Lord Martin Rees was one of the is one of the founders of. Mm -hmm. So that was um, formed, I think, in 2012. So yes, he's certainly uh, part of that Um, now. um, There's a global kind of um, um, network of people thinking of uh, the modern world in terms of well, what are the existential risks? that we need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So I was invited to attend, just as an attendee, the annual conference for the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk two years ago at Cambridge University and um, and there were only 70 people at it and it was the most wonderful two days um, mm. meeting people who, you know, were... Um, from different disciplines and one of the things that 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 centre and the Future of Life Institute and the Future of Humanity Institute and various ones around the world, in varying degrees, they're looking at, well, um, these issues are so potentially huge, we need to get different perspectives and the way we get different perspectives is to bring in different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So that's what's really appealing to me. Of course, I barrack for the uh, arts to be part of that critical
0: discussion. And where where are we up to on that critical discussion? I mean, I I, I look at the world well, around me and I, I I go, this is this is terrifying. I, I in fact think, I in fact say I'm not going to think about this because it's so terrifying. I'm just going to you know block it off because otherwise I I can't function anymore. So where is the where is the discussion? Well, I think a lot of
1: people are like you, and in fact, a lot of people say to me. Catherine, how can you seem to be such a happy person (laughs) when you're actually thinking about all these things? And and I go, well, in my own little way, um, I think I'm contributing, you know, something. And and who knows who might um, find some use in the questions that my work triggers in them. Um, I'm not saying that I've got answers, but I just think that, you know, presenting something in... In um, an unexpected way, in my paintings, you know, might actually trigger questions. But in terms of the research into existential risk, um, look, initially, there, people were going, "Oh, you know, that's just, you know, that's just alarmist." But now, you've, we've got the the centre at Cambridge. There's the Global Risk Institute, which is basically like a think tank. There's the Future of Life Institute out of um, Boston, the Future of Humanity Institute out of Oxford University. There are uh, academics here in Australia who are beginning to, you know, think in terms of existential risk. It's particularly, I mean, many academics have thought about it in terms of climate change and the environment, but in terms of emerging technologies, that's, you know, it's a reasonably um, um, innovative way of thinking about um, life on the planet at mm-hmm. the moment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I'm, I'm heartened that... The term existential risk and looking at it in terms of emerging technologies is becoming more prevalent in you know stuff you know that I get through Twitter or you know at conferences or or you know wherever rest assured, there are people that have people who are genuinely interested and uh, and 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 I think um, for instance you know when you've got something as um, um, As as significant as the University, Cambridge University, involved in Oxford, etc. I mean, those people involved in that research do actually contribute to policy and Mm -hmm. are invited. You know, in the UK, in the UK anyway, they are invited to present to government and to um, advise government. So,
0: I mean, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So that gives me some basis of hope. (laughs) Just. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> Catherine. When I, I I finish these interviews with two questions, and the first question is um, because this podcast is all about is it, just of women. Um, the first question is: What has been your experience in your career as a woman? Has that had any impact at all, positive or negative?
1: Uh, I think me being a woman as me I don't think it's I I can't really say one way or the other whether it's been a positive or a negative I'm neutral on that uh being a single mother certainly and that you know that is because I'm a woman I was a single mother. that had a huge effect on my career and um And I would never take away, you know, the time that I, you know, had with my three daughters was fantastic. But um, single mothers have it pretty tough and and it's not necessarily always about money, it's about time, it's about support. Um, And so, you know, the art world is very much, uh, a lot of it is about meeting people and networking and going to events. So I exhausted myself and paid enormous amounts in babysitting to actually go to things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've now stopped doing a lot of that.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So when when the lockdown came here in Queensland, I didn't really miss. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when I started the master's degree, well, I I was just so absorbed that I just, you know, unless there was something on really locally, I didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but. Um, yeah, I think um, because the children were only eight, five, and three, two when I got divorced, so they're very young.
0: Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that the hardest thing being a single mother is that it's all on you all the time. That there's just yeah. no, there's no saying, uh, you know, just give me more.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing that, you know, it's only you who gets up at night. To a child who's coughing, and then you get them to sleep, and then the other one wakes up with the cough, and you know they. Mm. (laughs) And you know when the when the older one gets to an age where she wants to go to parties, she's fourteen or fifteen. So you you, you let her go to the party, but to go and get her um, late at night, you have to wake the younger two up and put them in the car to go and Uh get one because you know it's not it's illegal to leave young children at home alone. Plus the fact that I wouldn't ever. Never do that, considering mm-hmm. my children were incredibly lively. So, um, you know, all of that and planning ahead that if if one child had something on early at school, well, you'd get that one up first and have them breakfast and then you'd get the other two and put them in the car, drop the one early at school, then go back to a coffee shop so you didn't have to come all the way home. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I'm really good at strategizing. I can
0: hear that. That's amazing. And then the last question I'd like to ask is if you've got a particular message for, for listeners.
1: Um, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting one. I think um, as I've got older, I've learnt not to worry about um, the small things, you know, the house and the garden. And, although, you know, in Gundawindi I had a beautiful big garden that, you know, I loved. Um and to say to, to say yes to the things that make your heart sing, but definitely say no to the things that you think you should do because it's a good cause or whatever, but doesn't make your heart sing because, mm-hmm. you, you know, time is precious. And then for younger ones, I've had a lot of opportunities that came easily to me when I was very young, but no one actually, and I didn't realise, and no one actually said to me, hey, Catherine, this is really significant that you've done this or got this or achieved this, you know, don't just think that it's something that will,
0: um,
1: you know, continue um, and, and really savour it, really be thankful for it. So I look back and things like getting the jobs straight out of university at the National Gallery in Canberra was amazing. You know, quite remarkable. Yeah. But no-one told me that it was. <laughs> and I was <laughs> And, you know, one of my aims when I was younger was to be the director of the National Gallery of Canberra. Well, that's passed me by. But, um, yes, I think look at every opportunity that comes along and just don't accept it willy-nilly. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's helpful,
0: but, yeah. No, it's certainly helpful to me to, to hear that. Uh, I, and I, I, I love the idea of just um, both doing things that make your heart sing and making sure that you stop doing the things, even if they're worthwhile things that that are that aren't really motivating you. I think that's yeah because very, because very in d- advice. <laughs> because in daily life there are
1: obviously things that you have to do that you don't really want to do. But mm. you know, if you're a capable person, you do get asked to do um um things that Interest you, but don't make your heart sing. Or things that when you, when somebody asks you, you go, "Oh no, I'm going to have to say no. I feel terrible. Don't feel terrible. Just say no."
0: <laughs> well, I'm very glad that you said yes to this podcast. And um, I'm delighted to be asked. Thank you. And I have really enjoyed. I mean, I, I think, I think, I love your work. I think it's. Um, I mean, I really love it. I think it's really beautiful. Um, and so original. And I oh, wish you, thank you. I wish you all the best of luck with your PhD, and I'm sure you'll contribute a lot to this debate on, you know, what, where is the world going and, and where should we be going? So um, oh. thank you for the thank work you, you're Sylvia. doing. Thank you. Okay. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brave New Women. On Friday 22 January, I'll be holding a free webinar to talk about how women can stand up and speak up. There'll be two sessions, 8.30 a.m. in Paris, which is 6.30 p.m. in Sydney, and then the second session at 2.30 p.m. Paris, which is 8.30 a.m. on the U.S. East Coast. If you'd like to join us, please connect on LinkedIn or on the Brave New Women Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening.